Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. I am honored today to welcome Rod Dreher. So many of you already know him from his writing. He's uh, been in the past a writer for the Dallas Morning News. He worked at the Templeton Foundation before and the last several years has been a columnist for the American Conservative. Uh, His most famous book, again, which many people in our circles have read, is The Benedict Option, a strategy for Christians in a post-Christian world. And his most recent book uh, is Live Not By Lies. So, Rod, thank you for joining us today. Matt, it's a pleasure to to be with you and uh, and your audience. It's always great now that I'm living overseas in Budapest in Hungary. It's so great to hear a southern a southern voice. Well, I definitely have that. There was a time in my life that I, I've tried to, when I was foolish in college, I tried to exercise it a little bit. But thankfully, I was prevented from from doing that. Oh, uh, you so. were saved. You were saved. I, you know, you, you said that Benedict Option is my most famous book, and that's true, but Weirdly enough, Live Not By Lies has sold twice as many copies. And, That's um, wonderful. Yeah, and, and uh, it is. And, you know, for the poor little Dreher Children's College Fund, it's wonderful. <laughs> but but um, what's so interesting about it is I got lots of press attention to Benedict Option, but Live Not By Lies was completely ignored by the media. And uh, I think it has everything to do with the Trump years and the fact that the media did not want to hear anybody talking about what, you know, the, the, the strongly anti-Christian, uh, anti-conservative, anti-liberty, anti-free speech turn that our culture has made. But I think that's also why uh, Live Not By Lies sold so well through word of mouth, because Christians hear about it and they, they know that things aren't what they used to be. We don't live in normal times and it's time for the church to get ready. Yes, yes. So, you know, for background, I was, and you know, for the people listening, I've been reading you since, I believe, 2008. Wow. Back I when you were, you. yes, so back around the time, just before the Front Porch Republic started, and you were still writing for Dallas Morning News, and you were on the old BeliefNet blog. Wow, that yeah, you know it's so weird that that that's where I got known as a as a blogger from BeliefNet, and it's hard to find some of the stuff I wrote back then online. Things have changed around so much, but um, but Matt, thank you for reading me for so long. Yes, well, I remember in two, 2010 getting excited when you were talking about this Benedict Option idea mm-hmm. because I didn't know very much about it, but I, I appreciated the idea of Christians banding together but so my my very first book that you wrote uh, that i read was crunchy cons <laughs> and that was the book that told me okay i may not fit with what what passes for conservatism in those other circles but but there are some people i actually have something in common with so the, the people you were writing about in crunchy cons i thought i can relate to some of this so And for for good or for bad, Rod, you know, there's a statement that a prophet is without is without honor in his own country. Well, you seem to be often just 
you label things just before they happen. So most of the, this new co- coalition of unique conservatives that are not Beltway conservatives, you were talking about this 15 or 20 years ago. You know, my literary agent has said the same thing. He said, Ron, you got to get your timing down because you write things and then they happen five years later, and uh, but the moment has already passed. And you're saying that I, I last summer, uh, summer of 2021, I think it was, I was in Nashville at a Christian conference and I met a pastor backstage, an uh, evangelical pastor from Portland, Oregon. And he told me, he said, oh, you're the Benedict Option guy. He said, when your book came out in 2017, a lot of us heard about it and said, oh, he's such an alarmist. He said, but now we don't think that because we are living what you were talking about. He said, things went for us in Portland where overnight from where people thought, oh, they're kind of weird. They believe in God, but they're basically decent people to where now they see us as the source of evil. So um, I hate to be right about this stuff, but the signs are there. We just have to find the courage to read the signs at the times and then act on them. Yes. Well, let's go back six years. When, you know, when you're writing the Benedict Option, what was your primary objective at the time? What were you thinking? I know you were seeing things that, you know, today have come to pass at the time were, had not yet come to pass. But what was your main objective in writing the Benedict Option then? Uh, simply the same as my objective right now with everything I do to wake up the church, to help Christians. I call us small O Orthodox Christians, but I mean, basically conservative Protestants, Catholics, uh, Orthodox Christians to read the signs of the times to see that we are in a post-Christian era. What I mean by that is not that there are no Christians. Clearly, there are a lot of Christians. But our country, the United States and the West more generally, is no longer a civilization that understands itself by the story of the Bible. You know, and this is a change that has happened in my lifetime and yours. Uh, And if you look at the statistics for the younger generation, the millennials and the Generation Z, my kids' generation, I mean, the bottom has fallen out. And um, I, I, I call it the Benedict Option after St. Benedict of Nursia, uh, a saint from the 6th century who was a young Christian. He was never ordained a priest or anything. He was just a young Christian living in the mountains in central Italy uh, after the fall of the Roman Empire, right after the fall. His parents sent him down to the city of Rome to finish his education. He gets down there and he sees that the city is in total chaos, moral chaos. He was afraid that if he stayed there and stayed embedded in the city, that he was going to lose his faith. So he went out to the the woods to pray and just to ask the Lord to show him what to do with his life. He ended up in a cave in a steep valley north of Rome in a place called Subiaco. He stayed in that cave for three years, reading scripture, praying and fasting and seeking the Lord's will. And while he was there, he ended up writing what we now call the rule of St. Benedict, which is a simple guide for how to live in Christian monastic community. And um, he didn't want to save Rome. He didn't want to make Rome great again or anything like that. All he wanted to do was to figure out how 
believers in this time of chaos and violence when everything was falling apart, how they could hold fast to scripture and live in community and seek God together. He died in the year 547. And when he died, he had founded 12 or 13 monasteries in the, in the countryside outside of Rome. And if that's all he had done, it would have still been a real accomplishment. But around that time, people began to flock to the monasteries, people who were seeking God and could not bear to live in the chaos of post-Roman society. And uh, over the next few centuries, these, this monastic movement spread all across Europe into some of the, the margins of society. And you would have like, barbarian tribes would come in and murder all the monks, but the mother house would just send more. And they would establish a Christian way of life there. And uh, they, would, they would have services. They would reach out to the local people. And it turns out that the, the peasants of that time who were not converted, they had not come to Christ, they would gather around these monasteries because they knew that there was peace there, there was order, and there was light. And eventually, they laid the groundwork for the conversion of Europe and for the rebirth of civilization. Another important thing they did, Matt, was in their, their libraries, and they called them the scriptoria, where the monks would copy scripture and also the classics from the ancient world so they wouldn't be lost. They would spend countless hours writing these things down to preserve the memory of what the West had been. And because those monks did that, um, when civilization was refounded, we had all those resources. So uh, my here in the 20, 21st century, I was thinking, what would it be today if we are Rome, if the United States and the Western civilization is like Rome, if we are collapsing, what would a Benedict today do? Now, um, none of us, or I don't think many of us, will be called to live in a monastery. We're called to live in the world. But if we are going to live in the world as faithful Christians in a world that has turned on us and has turned on Christ, what do we do? Are there lessons from the life and the teachings of St. Benedict that us lay Christians, whether we are Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, or whatever, that we can draw on to help build stronger communities, more dis spiritually disciplined ways of life so that we can hold it together until such time as the danger passes and uh, we can, the faith will still be here and we can refound the faith and begin to spread the gospel again as we did before. Now this is not, Matt, I, I know what your question is gonna be next. If everybody asks this, are you saying head for the hills? Absolutely not. We, late Christians, are called to be in the world. But as I said a second ago, if we're going to be in the world and live faithfully for Christ, we have got to step back away from that world to a certain extent so we can keep the memory alive of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Yes. And I actually, unlike I'm sure many of the people who accused you of that, uh, a, I did read the book, and B, uh, I, I, understood, I understood and, and understand completely where you were coming from because, in our case, for example, we don't have our children in public school. Right. And I was a public school teacher for 15 years, and, and so I, I'm aware that that, that can be a, a mission field of sorts for those who are teachers, but I don't. Just like 
we don't say you, you should go sit in a, a, a cauldron of boiling water to really be able to experience what it's like. Uh, we, we don't send our kids into cesspools so that they can, you know, absorb the smell. Yes, it's exactly right, man. And um, a lot of Christians, I think, you know, I would hear when I first published a book, people would say, well, I think our kids need to stay in public school to be salt and light. And I'm thinking, how can you do that to little children who are still being formed as believers? You throw them in that cesspool and you have not only coming from the school itself, anti-Christian messages, immoral messages, but also from the ambient culture of the other kids whose right. parents um, are giving them smartphones when they're little, who uh, open them up to all kinds of uh, really bad stuff in pop culture. And um, I, I think a lot of Christian parents want to believe that everything is normal and they can continue to live like they want to live and everything's going to work out. I wish that were true, man. I do wish it sure. were true because it's hard to be on the margins. But the most important thing that we as parents can do is pass the faith on to our kids and not just the faith um, in terms of what they say they believe, but the way they live. Because it turns out right. the way you live is 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 as important, if not more important, than what you have in your head. Well, a, a few weeks, no, a few months back, I actually gave a, uh, a presentation on your book. It was a, it, it was a lecture that was both, it, it was a, a summary and overview, but also looking at, at examples of, of others besides Benedict who did this type of thing. Uh, so, and one example was Cassiodorus, who was well known for preserving Christian education, a, a father of Christian education, and certainly Augustine had his own his own work here. But as I mean, what I did was just again maybe. A, eight months ago or so, but the book is now published in 2017. You finished writing it in 2016, just before the inevitable, well, I say inevitable, just before the thing happened that nobody expected to happen, which is Donald Trump is elected president. Right. And did, did you detect a shift in the people or in the public's desire for a book like this once he was elected. I mean, did, did was there, and I'm not, I'm not saying that there should have been, but, but did you detect this kind of collective sigh of relief? Okay. We got another good one in. So, yeah. you know, maybe God's kingdom will come this with, with, with this one this time. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the book sold well, but I think it would have sold much better had Hillary Clinton been elected, as we all thought. I mean, I, I, I finished the book in, gosh, I think it was October of that year, turned in the manuscript. We had to go back and put, and re-edit the part of it after Trump won. And um, and I, what I said in the book about in the new stuff I put in there, I said, look, you know, it, it's good that Trump won. Hillary didn't win because, you know, maybe Christians will have some protection, but don't be fooled. Don't think that just because there's been a political change in Washington, that that's going to stop the overall direction of the culture. And of course, that was that proved to be true. Um, and in fact, it got even worse in some ways because the left 
especially in the media, got so hysterical about Trump that woke what we call wokeness went on hyperdrive. And um, it was it was just really a remarkable thing to see how in my own business, the media, um, how they quit even trying to be fair, making any pretense of fairness. I even asked, uh, I had a reporter who came to Hungary when I was living over here on a fellowship um, a year and a half ago. She, she was a reporter for a major American newspaper, very liberal paper. And I said to her after the interview, I said, listen, I've been subscribing to your paper for much of my life, even though I'm a conservative. I just need to know what's going on uh, and what, what the left is saying. Uh, I said, but there's been a real shift when Trump was elected uh, and y'all don't even try to be fair. And she admitted that this is true. She said that she doesn't live that way, but she said in our newsroom, the feeling was that if fairness got us Donald Trump, then we can't afford to be fair anymore. And uh, this was a collapse of, of principles, of professional standards, but, um, you know, and, and it's just gotten worse and worse. And then we had, of course, 2020 with COVID and the George Floyd riots. And uh, the, I, I think for, for me, the most important thing that's happened, Matt, is the incredible rise of LGBT and especially transgenderism. I mean, I, I just this morning, I was in uh, the country of Slovakia, north of us, on a TV show talking about uh, about these ideas. And there was a man on there with me, a professor, an older man, um, and he just couldn't believe what I was saying about how we are living in a time of what I call soft totalitarianism. He said, oh, come on, I live through communism. There's nothing like that. We can still speak our minds and all that. I said, if you can do that in your country, you're blessed, but we can't do that in my country anymore. And whatever starts in America inevitably comes over here. And, uh, and the main thing, the two main things are race and sexuality. And um, anyway, maybe I'm getting ahead of the, of the, the story here. But uh, in any case, it has gotten so much worse so fast. And I think um, I remember just before Live Not By Lies came out in um, uh, the fall of 2020, it came out just before the election. And a guy at my church back in Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana, he took a copy to his Bible study and he said, you guys need to read this. This guy goes to my church and he's he's seeing things that are that are coming out as fast as Christians. He said, every one of those men, they're all baby boomers, said, oh, no problem. Trump's going to go back in. It's going to solve all this. Well, you know, it's just but there's such an incredible, incredible desire to pretend that things are OK. But look, you look, look in Scripture. I mean, can you imagine the, the people standing around Noah as he's building the ark and the rain won't stop and they still say, Noah, you're crazy, you're crazy. Right, right. Well, something that I, I, I've noticed, so I, I, I've been keeping up with politics since Bill Clinton was elected in 1992. So I was 10 years old and, or I believe it was 90, yeah, it was 92. And the... It, it, it's always fascinated me how Christians are were faithful standing guard dogs when a Democrat was the president, whether it was Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, and and, and of course now Joe Biden. But they're they're watchful, they're paying attention to everything. However, when a Republican is in office, 
George W. Bush or, you know, of course, Donald Trump. It's the, the idea is, is like we don't have to. There's not there's no need to stand guard. Yeah, because our, our guys in there. Well, it's a misunderstanding of politics, Matt. I mean, I, it's it's good to be involved in politics. It's good to vote in a moral way. But that's only part of our culture. I mean, the, the famous state saying is that politics is downstream from culture. I was at a conference here in Budapest earlier this year, and we had a lecture from a British political scientist, a guy named Eric Kaufman. And uh, he had just finished a study uh, for the Manhattan Institute in, in New York about the political views of Generation Z, the youngest American adults. And he, he told the audience, he said, we conservatives have got to fight the culture war above anything else. Why is that? Because this generation is so far to the left. They do not believe in free speech. They do not believe in religious liberty. They don't believe in all the things that all of us, whether we voted you know, Democratic or Republican, took for granted all our lives. That's gone. And um, the First Amendment is, thank God we have it, but it's not going to save us if the whole culture has gone over to, um, to in, in a democratic society, has gone over to thinking free speech is a menace. And even with the First Amendment, think about what happened to this guy, Ryan T. Anderson. Ryan Anderson is the head of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, a Catholic intellectual, a really brave man. He's would go into the lion's den to defend traditional marriage and biblical right. sexual principles. Well, a few years ago, he published a book called When Harry Became Sally about transgenderism. I read the book. It's a sensible, sober book. It doesn't make fun of transgenders, but it, it just talks about the threat from transgenderism and what it means. Um, he woke up one day to find that the book was no longer being sold on Amazon. And he, in, he inquired about it and they said, well, we don't want to sell books that construe transgenderism as a mental illness. Well, that's crazy. But guess what? They have the right under the First Amendment to decide what they will and won't sell. And this is important because we don't want a Christian bookstore to have to sell the satanic Bible to use an extreme example. Right. The problem is this. If the cult, Amazon controls 70 to 80 percent of the retail book market in America, if Amazon makes a free decision and a free market that it will not sell a certain kind of book, those books are not going to get published. They drew Amazon drew the line at transgenderism. That's not going to be the only place they draw the line, especially as these young woke people move further and further into positions of corporate power. This is what the church has got to come to grips with and deal with and plan for. So in between the Benedict option, you had several years. You wrote later, Live Not By Lies. And the transition in some points between the two books, as I've gone back and, and read through both of them again in preparation, is almost seamless. I mean, it, it just the, the themes that they layer nicely. If you could now go back and re-edit or adapt or include something in addition in the Benedict option, what would it be? Or, or, or maybe I could ask, what have you learned 
since then that you wish you would have included? Oh, what a great question. I think, well, let me back up a little and, and tell your audience what Live Not By Lies is. The title of Live Not By Lies comes from a phrase of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's probably the most important um, anti-communist dissident of the 20th century. Uh, he wrote a famous book called The Gulag Archipelago that exposed all the prison camps in the Soviet Union. And he himself was a believer. He came to Christ in prison. And um, I wrote the book because I had begun to hear from people in the United States who had escaped to America from communist countries in Eastern Europe and Russia, um, escaped to freedom. And they were starting to say the things they see happening in America today remind them of what they ran away from. And it sounded crazy to me at first. I mean, come on, where, where's the secret police? Where are the gulags, the uh, prison camps and all that? But I finally realized when I kept talking to them that they're seeing a different kind of totalitarianism, but it's still totalitarian. And by that, I mean, they're seeing the creation, the emergence, even within liberal democracy, of a system that will only allow one opinion. And if you don't agree with that opinion, they will drive you out of your jobs, they will try to shut you down. They will uh, marginalize you socially and on and on and on. Um, I call this soft totalitarianism as opposed to the hard totalitarianism of the Soviet Union, where you would be thrown in jail and tortured for your faith or for your, dis your dissent. So uh, I guess Live Not By Lies would be a, uh, it was a sequel, absolutely. But um, I wrote Benedict Option in a culture that was headed this way, but hadn't quite gotten there. But uh, after Trump was elected and wokeness became um, really on fire and feral, I realized that this is all happening a lot faster than I even expected. So to answer your question, I, I wish in rereading Benedict Option, I wish I'd focused more on what Christians should do about the workplace. Because I mean, just today, as you and I are talking, uh, before we came on, I read a story about a lawyer in Washington who has 44 years of experience, a very senior lawyer in a big law firm. Her law firm had a, um, a, a Zoom session after the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, a Zoom session for female lawyers. And uh, they were just asking people, what's your opinion, let's share and all that. Well, this woman is pro-life and she said, that she thought the decision was a good one for uh, legal reasons. And she went on to say that uh, in, in our country, so many, a disproportionate number of black unborn children die from abortion, and that's horrible. Don't you know that they fired her? They called her a racist and fired her. They have the legal right to do that. But um, what does she do now? I, again, I wish I had spent more time talking and strategizing or talking to people who are within uh, the legal community and other communities about what specifically believers can do. But again, I, I didn't see it getting so bad so fast. I thought we'd have time to, to deal with this in the right. same way um, about transgenderism. I wish I'd spent more time talking about that. But I remember after the Obergefell decision, um, which you know, legalized same-sex marriage, made it constitutional. A lot of us knew that was bad, but we thought we'd have about maybe five years before we had to start dealing with transgenderism, and we didn't. I wish I had anticipated that and, um, and had written more about it.
But, um, you know, I, I, I did the best I could, but things are happening so fast, Matt, that it's so hard to predict yes. what's going to happen tomorrow. And again, this is one of the things I quoted a woman who came to this country with her parents from the Soviet Union. She told me that this is part of their experience with communism. She said something that is perfectly normal and legal today, tomorrow it can be forbidden and you'll find yourself in jail for having spoken about it, not even knowing that it had got become forbidden. Well, for, for the people who are listening, I can say that, I mean, of the two books, I actually appreciated Live Not By Lies more because in that book, you are at your best as a journalist. You are, you are doing what God has gifted you in the greatest way to do, which is reporting the stories of people. And the stories you tell are fantastic. I mean, many are sad, but they communicate the need of the hour well. Well, you're kind to say that, and it's, I, I give all credit to these brave men and women who stayed behind. They didn't leave their countries. They stayed behind to resist communism as Christians. And I just asked them to tell, tell me what it, that was like and tell me what the American church needs to know. And the stories were just incredible, as you say. That's the thing that really carries it home. It's one thing to, to state something as, you know, like, this is what you need to do. But when you have the voice of someone who was beaten in prison for their faith saying, this is what you need to do, it's something different. And, you know, Matt, the... The thing, I think the most important lesson, there were several key lessons from Live Not By Lies, but the most important lesson for the church that I got from them is that we have got to learn how to suffer. I remember standing on a street corner in Moscow talking to this white-haired elderly Russian Baptist pastor um, who had led his, his uh, people through the end of communism, but he had grown up in Siberia uh, when Stalin took all the men of the Baptist community away, put them in the gulag. The women had to keep the church going and had to read the Bible to these people. I mean, it was just incredible, the stories they told. But this old man, Yuri Sipko, looked at me in the eye and said, go back to America and tell the church, prepare to suffer. Because if you can't, nay, if you're not willing to suffer for Christ, your faith is worth nothing. Now, I heard this uh, same version of this over and over and over again, but somehow hearing it in, in the shadow of Red Square from this mm -hmm. old man made a big difference, um, a man who had suffered. And, uh, and it connected with what I figured out was the core of the totalitarianism we face now. It is not George Orwell's 1984 uh, police state totalitarianism. That's what they had in the Soviet Union. This is more like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, the other totalitarian novel of the 20th century that was so big. That's a totalitarianism that depends on people's comfort and their, their sense of entertainment to, control, to, to keep power. People's fear of suffering. And people in that novel gave up all their liberty for the sake of being taken care of, being entertained, having all the sex they want, being given pornography to look at, um, being given drugs to make them happy all the time. Sounds pretty familiar. 
And yes. uh, in, in that book, uh, uh, Brave New World, the dissident is a man who grew up outside of that society. And he, he has a showdown with the world controller who doesn't want to torture him and make him join. He just looks at him and says, why don't you want to be part of this? You know, we get everything's taken care of. He calls it Christianity without tears. And you learn from this showdown that the the man, the dissident, John the Savage, they call him, he tells them uh, that suffering is a part of what it means to be human. And he's not a Christian, but um, but you can we, we follow a Lord who was willing to suffer out of love. And we cannot cannot expect to to experience the joy of heaven if we're not willing to go with our Lord through his passion. And that's what we're called to do now. And that's what we've got to prepare ourselves for. I tell the story, Matt, and I live not by lies about this woman who's becoming actually a good friend of mine here in Hungary. Her name is Anna. She's a young wife and mother, a faithful Christian. We were riding a tram through the city. She was my interpreter for interviews with these dissidents. And she said, you know, Rod, I have so much trouble uh, talking to my friends, even Christian friends, about the struggles I have in my marriage. If I stop and tell them my husband and I have been arguing lately or our little boy has been keeping keeping us up late at night and it's causing trouble at home. They cut me off and say, oh, Anna, just get a divorce. Put your son in daycare. Go back to the office. You deserve to be happy. She said, I try to tell them I am happy. You know, I love being a wife and a mom, but a happy life isn't the same thing as a life without any struggle, without any suffering, but they cannot understand it. That is the essence right there, Matt, of the world today. We have raised a generation, more than one generation, of people who don't know how to suffer for anything, and they would be willing to surrender their liberties for the sake of avoiding even anxiety. One of the many elements so so you you bring in uh hannah arendt and her her book uh, on totalitarianism and you talk and you refer to what she says regarding social atomization Mm -hmm. as one of the key elements that that eventually leads to a totalitarian state now Maybe to back up a little bit, you've you've talked about just now when when referring to uh, Huxley to the to the kind of soft totalitarianism of Brave New World, not one that's forced like in North Korea or in the Soviet Union, but one where the, you are gradually lured into it. But that gives that can lead us to social atomization. So, so how does our society, I mean, we're, we're not communist here, but yet we are atomized, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, Robert Putnam, Bowling Alone, and, and so on. That's just one of many books that, that talk about this. Robert Nisbet was talking about it even well before Put, Putnam. So how does, how does our society atomize people and how does that contribute to at the rise of a totalitarian state? Mm. You know, when you ask that question, I, I go back to think about 
the town I grew up in, in South Louisiana, a little town on the Mississippi River, 2,000 people. I grew up there in the 70s. And I remember every weekend at somebody's house, somebody would have a fish fry or a crawfish boil or, you know, or cook deer, deer meat or something, anything. The whole purpose of it was just to bring everybody together. The adults would sit around talking and the kids would run around outside till late at night getting bit by mosquitoes and all that. It was just the community. That's what the community was. And then us kids grew up. Some of us went to college. We moved on. And whenever I would go back to visit my mom and dad, I'm talking about like in the 90s, early 90s, I noticed they weren't doing that, that people, the, the adults weren't getting together anymore. And I finally figured out why. Satellite TV had come in. And suddenly all the people, all these, these adults, my, my parents' generation, they didn't have to get together and see for something to do. There was always something to watch on TV. And gradually this technology, this entertainment, it began to erode the fabric of the community. Now, if you go back to this community today, you would, you would still think it was like Mayberry compared to most people. But the embrace of technology and entertainment and the, the willingness, the desire to be entertained all the time with, with our generation, it's the internet and social media. That has played a big part in it, but it's also the idea that when we place individual happiness and individual choice, when we make that in our society the absolute good, this is what you're going to get. It's also the case that, um, and Hannah Arendt, when she, she talked about it in her book, I should back up a little, her book is called The Origins of Totalitarianism. It came out in um, 1951. Uh, she was a German-Jewish refugee from fleeing the Nazis, but she wanted to figure out after the war was over, how was it that Germany and Russia both went to totalitarianism, very different kinds of totalitarianism, but still totalitarianism. So she studied it. And as you alluded earlier, she said that the number one by far issue that made people willing to accept totalitarian control was atomization and loneliness, mass loneliness. Well, why is that? Because when people no longer have communities, when they're not part of churches or civic organizations, sports leagues, that sort of thing, they become lonely. They begin to seek out meaning and purpose in life. And these totalitarian uh, political parties, the Nazis in Germany, the communists in Russia, they offered a solution, a seeming solution. They're like, the churches have failed you. Everything has failed you. We're, we'll give you what you want. We'll give you meaning. We'll give you passion. We'll give you a purpose in life. And we'll give you fellowship with all your fellow Nazis or communists. It was a seductive thing. I feel like that we are, we're ripe for it. And it's not just the loneliness. I mean, she talks about um, how loss of respect for hierarchy and authority was a big part of it. And for institutions, if you look now at the polls in America, people don't have respect for institutions anymore. And it's not entirely wrong. I mean, we've learned a lot about corruption within institutions that has helped drive people to this point of view, but there's gonna be a political consequence there. Um, also another big one, transgression for the sake of transgression. That is um, just to see how far you can go. Uh, just as you and I are talking, there's been a lot of controversy over this ad campaign from Balenciaga, the high fashion uh, label. They had a, Chris, a Christmas ad campaign 
that totally sexualized children. I mean, it was disgusting and horrible. They had to pull it down after criticism. Turns out the woman who designed that campaign, I think she's a Satanist. I mean, that literally. She, uh, her name is Lada Volkova, Russian woman. You go back and look at some of her art, it is deeply occult and perverse and involves uh, sexualization and torture of children. She was called by one big fashion magazine, the coolest stylist in the industry. Um, and that made me realize too, Matt, that something that I read in one of the history books of the Russian Revolution, uh, this historian, James Billington, said that in pre-revolutionary Russia, uh, there was an interest and an obsession with sexuality that had no, uh, there was no parallel to it in any age of Russian history. And the elites became fascinated with Satan. They began to look up to Satan as, <clears throat> as a, a model for them. They weren't actual Satanists. Some of them might have been. But all the literary elite, they looked to the devil as being the, the original rebel. You know, he was a total individualist. Now, uh, I, I met this summer in England a young man. He's a, an Anglican seminary, a, a guy from London, 27 years old. Uh, he's very talented. He was in uh, the creative industry uh, in advertising before he felt a call to the ministry. He's a conservative evangelical, uh, which are pretty rare in England. But uh, right. he told me that in his office uh, at one of the top ad agencies in London, he said, there are no atheists. I'm like, Really? That's amazing to me. This is England. It's not really a Christian country. There are no atheists. He said, no, but I was the only Christian. He said, every other person in that office was involved in some degree with the occult. And he said there were actually two open Satanists there. And they call Satanism living your best life, you know, reaching your maximum human potential. Now, I bring all this up, Matt, just to say that the signs are flashing neon red about a culture that's in real trouble. Right. And you mentioned James Billington. I don't know if it was, what was that fire in the minds of man? Was that the book that you were? No, uh, the icon and the acts. The icon okay. and the acts. Uh, he was a former librarian of Congress, as you right. know, really a very distinguished uh, Russia expert, but, um, Man, I tell you, to read all this stuff, it just shakes you up because you realize this is how it can happen here. Yeah, well, because his book, Fire in the Minds of Men, which I have, is just on revolutionary faith everywhere. So it, it he talks th those exact same things you were just mentioning with the Russian Revolution happened in France prior to the French Revolution. All of it, sexualization, uh, high like in, yeah, yeah, you're yeah, right. In, in, in increase in the occult, the loss of trust in high that's a rent now, loss of trust in hierarchy, but all but but the spiritual element is there, and that's something that, that Billington points out. So then that leads me to this question: what role then does spiritual warfare play? And I know this then can easily bleed into your ongoing project right now on re-enchantment that's right because it's all right so so i'm you know full disclosure to to those who are hearing i'm i subscribe to your substack so oh, thank you thank you uh and so you you recently talked about some some of the spiritual warfare for example going on in mexico which yes. again 
Same thing with the French Revolution and with the Russian Revolution in the 19-teens when you have you know, the, the something nobody talks about, which is the Mexican Revolution where, where, where the atheists were trying to just eliminate you know, all traces of God there. It, it's going on. I mean, it went on there as well. So, so what is the role of spiritual warfare in what we're doing now? You know, that is that is the most important question, Matt, because and this is, as you say, this is a book I'm working on now. And I think it'll be I hadn't even conceived this as a trilogy, but this is going to be it. You know, the the the, the third part that uh, we we all know as Christians that we fight against principalities and powers. But these aren't just words in a in the Bible. This is so incredibly real. I was talking um two weeks ago to an exorcist and soon to interview him for the book. And uh, he was telling me about things that are happening in the Vatican. There's lots of corruption, um, of course, in, in, in the Vatican, financial corruption. But he works for a cardinal, uh, a cardinal who's been on the right side of things, trying to clean things up. And this exorcist told me, he said, Rod, if you're going to write about this stuff, you need to be aware that you are going to be attacked spiritually. You better have things in order. He said, things are so bad here that we have had a couple of demonic manifestations right here in the residence with the Cardinal. And uh, he goes, this is not a joke. And um, this is happening everywhere. I mean, look, you wa- I walked into Barnes and Noble in Baton Rouge when I was living there just to do some Christmas shopping. I was absolutely shocked. I don't know if you've been in the Barnes Noble recently, but they have shelves and shelves of how to get girls into witchcraft. It's, I I mean, it's, it's Mm. like something that some lurid fantasy, but this is, this is so real. And if we don't ground our kids and ourselves in the word, we don't ground our kids and ourselves in prayer. And if we're not aware that beneath all of this stuff, all of this evil we see is the devil are demons. We are not going to be prepared for it. I gave a talk once at a um, a conservative evangelical college in the Midwest about the Benedict option uh, just before it came out. But I was talking about some of these themes and I talked about this one. um, uh, I gave one lecture about uh, spiritual discipline, the important of building spiritual disciplines into your life. In the Q&A, this uh, about 800 students there, this girl stood up, raised her hand and said, Sir, I don't understand what you mean by spiritual discipline. Uh, why isn't it enough to love the Lord with all our hearts like our parents taught us? And I said, well, no, that's you have to do that. That's where everything starts. But if you're going to ground that love in something that can withstand the changing emotions that all of us right. experience, you've got to have discipline in your life. She, I could tell she had no idea what I was saying. And uh, after the talk was over, this professor came up to me at the school and said, what that young lady said is how 99% of our students here think. They come to us out of youth group culture that has presented Jesus to them as your buddy, as something, someone you relate to and you have fun, etc. And all of that can be important, but they come to us knowing very little about scripture, nothing about spiritual discipline. And they have four years here with a bunch of other Christian kids. But then they get out into the real world. And the first time someone says to them, what you Christians believe is mean, they collapse. Right. Well, to close then, 
uh, I know this may not be your specialty, but but tell us uh, where do we you know what are we called to do in pursuing hope? I'm glad you asked that because a lot of this stuff, everything we've been talking about, is pretty depressing. But I think about the martyrs of the church from every age of the church. We've had them from the very beginning, St. Stephen, the first martyr, all the way up to the present day. There are martyrs being made uh, in China today, in the Muslim world. Christians are being killed in Nigeria. Christians being slaughtered. It's happening. Um, We have to imagine that they went to their deaths with hope in their hearts. Not hope that they were going to escape death. We hope that we escape death. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nobody wants to die a horrible death. But we know that if we even have to give our lives for the Lord, then we will dwell in glory forever. And the Lord will use our sacrifice to further his kingdom on this earth in ways we can't even understand. So that's why I, I, I tell Christian audiences I talk to, I say, we are not called to be optimistic. We're called to be hopeful. We all want to be optimistic, and there's nothing wrong with hoping things work out, but we have to be realistic. Tonight, I, I just got back before we talked. I was having dinner with some people here in Budapest. One of the men at the table was a man named Václav Klaus, former president of the Czech Republic. And uh, he's an old man now, and he said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I... I'm I'm a pessimist about where things are going in our culture now, but I'm hopeful. And he didn't get to finish his talk, but I wanted to, I wanted to say, sir, I understand what you're saying because I'm a believer. Um, and I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And I know that as long as we suffer faithfully with the Lord, that we have every reason to hope. But if we don't start talking that way, um, with, um, Uh, if we don't start talking that way as Christians and building that kind of hope into our congregations, into our families, into ourselves, we're not going to be able to sustain ourselves with what's coming. I want to, before we go, I want to tell the story about the man I dedicated the book to, a Catholic priest. Uh, I'm not Catholic, but he was such an inspirational figure, Father Tomislav Kolakovich. Father Kolakovic was a Croatian priest who was doing work against the Nazis in his own country back in the Second World War. He got a tip that the Germans were coming after him. So he escaped the country overnight, went to hide out in his mother's homeland, Slovakia. And uh, he got a job teaching at a Catholic university in the capital, Bratislava, 1943. He told his students, they were all Catholics, He said, the good news is the Germans are going to lose this war, but the bad news is the Soviets are going to be ruling us when it's over, and the first thing this communists are going to do is come after the church. We have to be ready. So what he did, he began putting together small groups uh, for prayer uh, of young believers, for prayer, but not just for prayer, but they talked uh, endlessly about what was happening around them in their society, the way their society was changing, and what they could do as believers, what practical things they could do to build fellowship and resilience. Within uh, two years of that priest coming to that country, every village of any size had at least one of these prayer groups there. Mm -hmm. Now, the bishops, the Catholic bishops of that country, they chastised him and said, Father, you're scaring people. It's never going to happen here. 
just calm down. But Father Kolakovich knew better because he had studied communism uh, as part of his seminary work because he wanted to be a missionary to the Soviet Union. So he kept working. Well, sure enough, everything happened just like he said. They kicked him out of the country and they came after the clergy and uh, took the clergy to jail and began to repress the church. The reason the underground church was able to thrive in Slovakia under communism, 40 years of communism, was because of what that priest and his early followers did. They took it seriously and they got ready. I tell everybody, we are in a Kolakovich moment now in the United States and throughout the West. The Lord has given us the time and the liberty to come together, to study, to pray together, to build these networks so we can offer each other real material and spiritual assistance when the persecution begins. But if we wait until they start putting people in jail for their faith, it might be too late. Hmm. Ron, I really appreciate this. This has been excellent and sobering as well as necessary. So uh, for, again, anyone who wonders, the books are The Benedict Option and also Live Not By Lies and, and be on the lookout here in another, I don't know, six months, a year, something like that. He'll have another book out on reenchantment, which will add some hope and or hope and depth, also to uh, to, to this. So I, I thank say you, what, uh, before I don't want to scare scare people. The word reenchantment kind of gives people the um, uh, a chill sometimes because it sounds kind of woo woo. All I mean by that is I, I refer to this guy Max Weber. He was a German sociologist who said. After the Enlightenment, the Western world is disenchanted, meaning we don't believe in religion anymore. And uh, I think that, you know, his prediction, sadly, has come true and is coming true, uh, especially with the younger generation today. So I'm, I got to wondering, well, how could we re-enchant it in a Christian way? Meaning, how can we connect deeply with the spiritual power that has been there all along, but that so many of us, through our own backsliding or you know uh, lax spiritual practices, I accuse myself of this too. We've let that power of the word and the power of the Lord wane. Well, we we're, we're going to have to connect with it in a powerful way, in a an intense way, if we're going to make it through what's coming. And that's what I'm I'm looking at now. I'm I'm leaving in the morning, in fact, uh, to go to Turkey to visit the places where the seven churches of Revelation were. And, uh, you know, the Lord had some strong words for those churches in the first chapters of Revelation. And uh, I'm just going to go there. I'm going to pray. I'm going to see what I see and uh, ask the Lord just to show me what I need to see so I can pass it on to the people who read me. Uh, as you know, Matt, because you read my Substack, I'm going through a really, really difficult time right now. My, my wife, uh, 25 years, filed for divorce. Um, it's a sad, sad thing. Um, I, yeah, obviously something I can't talk about the details there, but the Lord has been so faithful through this. He has deepened my faith um, by making, putting me in a position where I have to rely on him. And uh, he has, by his great mercy, he has kept my heart from being given over to anger about all this. And I've been able to pray for her. And um you know, it's not a fun thing, but it really does give, um, it has given impetus to me not only to learn how to suffer well, 
but how to not just bear the, the pain of divorce and loss. Everybody's got something in their lives. I mean, the people looked at me and thought, oh, that guy's a you know well-known Christian writer, conservative, and everything's great with him. It hadn't been great for a long time, but um, I don't want to get too personal here, but what I do want to say is the suffering that I've had to go through um, has driven me to my knees in a way that I never have been before, but there's been so much blessing out of this, and it has given me so much impetus to go deeper into the spiritual power that is there for all of us. And uh, I'm excited about this book I, because I know how many people are suffering. I've, After my divorce was announced, it's a shameful thing. I'm so embarrassed by it and broken by it, but it is what it is. But I've had people reach out to me by email saying, brother, it happened to me, or I'm, I'm about to go through it myself. What can I do? And fellowship has has come out of that. And for that, I give God thanks. Good. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm thankful for how the Lord has sustained you in this and I'm anticipate good things from your next book. So thank you, Rod, for taking the time to join us today. It's been a, a, a great blessing for us. Well, thank you, Matt. And God bless your people there. We're all in this together and, um, and let's pray for each other. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.